You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Well, okay, so there's a mythological story, uh, Greek mythology, that I'm sure you're at least familiar with the name of a young man named Narcissus. Narcissus was known for his good looks and his pride. He was extremely handsome, and he knew it. And he was known for breaking the hearts of nymphs, and he finally broke the heart of one sweet little nymph, and this made Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, very angry, and so she cursed Narcissus, and the curse was that he would fall in love with the very next person that he gazed upon. And so he's on a journey, and as one account goes, that she led him to a pool of water where he knelt down to drink from the water, and as he did, he laid his eyes upon the most attractive person he had ever seen himself. And he fell in love with himself, his own reflection. And so self-consumed, he he tried to continue to lunge at the person to, to lay a big kiss on them. And every time he did, he would bump the water and then they would disappear. His tale was a tale of self-love, one of grasping, but never obtaining. And he spent the rest of his life 
continuing to, to grasp for this person and to go and press the water and then his picture would disappear and then it would come back and he just, he was there for the rest of his life until he starved to death. Now, quite the story. And quite the way to begin a sermon, by the way, um, if you're taking notes there. There are a lot of lessons that we can learn from this myth, but one is the way that it illustrates the curse of sin and the, the, the human nature that we all as people share. As theologians from the past throughout Christian history described us, we are in the Latin incurvatus in sea, which means curved in on self. Our parents' generation would call it navel-gazing. The nature of sin has left us helplessly, every single one of us turned in on ourselves. And the result is that the more that we are fixated on self, the more we lose ourself. The less of ourself we become. And so the only way to be freed from our bondage to self and all of the the negative effects of selfishness, which I don't even think we even need to go into today. I think we understand the negative effects of selfishness. But the only way to be freed from this bondage to self is by looking outward and away from ourselves in faith. What we have to do is that we've got to discover something or someone that we find more captivating and beautiful and attractive than our own reflection. And so a very simple way of summing this up is like this. Sin is when we turn from God to self, but faith is when we turn from ourself to God. And it's that kind of faith that Paul describes as leading to new life. You want to live a transformed life, you got to get your eyes off yourself and on God. And it's only this kind of faith that leads to us being declared righteous by God, Paul says. And so here's the reminder. Romans is about the good news that God has formed a new humanity that's not based on a race or our gender, or our religious performance, or our cultural practices, or our political allegiances, but is based simply on faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this faith. We're going to look at, as Paul describes here, the law of faith, or as some translations read, the principle of faith. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at faith's boast, faith's belonging, and faith's benefit. Let's begin with faith's boast. And let me, let me just say this simply and then explain. How you boast reveals who you trust. How you boast reveals who you trust. The way to know for certain who or what you've put your faith in is by following the sounds of your boasting. And so when we boast in ourselves, which sounds something like this, look at what I have done. I have done something important that makes me important. Or it comes up in other forms, like no one appreciates me. No one ever acknowledges me and what I have done. If the world only knew, or it represents itself like this, man, no one else was able to do it. So you know what I did? I just took control. I took matters into my own hands and I made it happen. When we boast in ourselves, it means the Bible would show us that we're trusting in ourselves. 
And sadly, we are probably one of the only generations in human history to not realize that this is actually a terrible idea to believe in ourselves. Let's tease this out a little bit longer. When you're in a room with other people and someone else gets celebrated for success, maybe it is even something that you helped accomplish, what do you do? Where does your heart go in that moment? Are you able to enjoy the moment with them? Are you able to celebrate their success? Or do you feel the need to bring the attention back to yourself and to your own accomplishments? Or, or, or do you at least kind of quietly pat yourself on the back? You just begin to brew like, if they only knew how I made that happen. They only knew. They'll know one day, I'm sure. See, this impulse to get the attention back on ourselves and to boast in ourselves and to feel important stems from a failure to, one, understand the gravity of our own sin. If we saw our sinfulness for the way that God describes our sinfulness in the scriptures, we would not be boasting. We would be mortified. We wouldn't want the attention on ourselves. We would want to divert attention at every opportunity. And yet also, this stems from a failure to see the extravagance of God's love and his acceptance and his approval upon us. Paul would describe it in chapter 2 like this, that a believer's praise is not from man, but from God. Our praise comes not from man, but from God. Wait, I thought we're supposed to praise God, but the Bible just says, no, and God praises us. Not in a way where he treats us like God, but in a way where he boasts in us. He is applauding our life. He is saying, I love you. I am glad you're mine. You ever just pause to recognize that the attention of the eternal creator is upon you right now? Paul states that if and when you truly grasp this gospel, boasting is eliminated. Chapter 3, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Go ahead and say it out. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. My bad, I thought we brought our Bibles to church. <laughs> Thanks, brother. It's excluded. There's no reason. Let's keep teasing this out a little bit. I know that you guys, you guys are a little bit uncomfortable. How about when you witness someone else failing miserably? Where does your mind and heart go when you watch someone just crash and burn? The Germans actually have a really interesting word, schadenfreude. And it's described as the unexpected thrill that we feel at someone else's misfortune. Oh, yeah. Now, that may be particular to a specific European language, but it is an experience that we all have as human beings. It's the reason why people continue to read the tabloids. It's the reason that you continue to follow Hollywood gossip. It's probably the reason you watch the Britney Spears documentary. Because it gives us a temporary sense of relief to know, well, at least I'm not that screwed up. At least I'm not that bad. And what's tragic about this sense of superiority is that it comes into our religious experience. Paul is not just talking about boasting in general, he's talking about religious boasting. There is nothing more destructive than spiritual pride. 
The kind that says, look what I have done for God. Look at all the things that I accomplished for him. Or the kind that feels good about ourselves and feels good about a relationship with God when we compare ourselves to the sinfulness and the brokenness of the people around me. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like that person. Sounds strangely familiar. It's as if Jesus had actually given an illustration of this point. In Luke chapter 18, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he just simply beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this very startling thing. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the question is, why did the tax collector depart justified, accepted by God, instead of the person that we would assume, the religious leader, the one that does it right? Well, it wasn't based on their life. It wasn't based on their upbringing. It wasn't even based on their religious performance. It's based on their boasting. Because ultimately, that reveals what they trust. The Pharisee claims to be something special. He boasts in his good works, thinking that makes him right with God. What's the tax collector do? He claims to be nothing but a sinner, and therefore his boast is in God's mercy. Therefore his trust is in God's saving grace. The good news that we are accepted and approved by God according to his grace takes away every opportunity to boast in ourselves. In fact, we go from boasting in, our, in ourselves to boasting in Christ. That's the goal. Not just that we would stop being prideful, but our attention would be on Jesus. Paul would say elsewhere in Galatians 6, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So it's not about self-obsession. But, but hear me, it's also not about self-hatred. This isn't about self-obsession, but it's also not about self-hatred. It's about Christ's obsession. And when our boast is in Christ, all of our self-esteem issues, all of our need for attention, all of our need for recognition, all of our need to justify our existence is eliminated. We are totally freed. Totally freed. Because we have the recognition that we've longed for most. And we lift our eyes in faith and we realize that the eyes of God's love have been on us all along. Faith's boast. Secondly, we see faith's belonging. Look at me again in verses 28 and, and, uh, through 30 in chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. 
since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and also the uncircumcised by faith. All right, let's get into the portion of this passage that you've really been looking forward to this morning. Circumcision. Woo. I don't trust the guy who woos circumcision. <laughs> well, there's a lot that can be said about circumcision, and to be honest, more than any of us desire. Let's, let me state this simply. What it, what it served to do was to reveal who belonged and who didn't belong. That was the point. Circumcision was the Old Testament boundary marker of God's covenant people. And so being born into God's people meant that you were circumcised as an infant or to convert to become part of God's people. It meant that you were circumcised as an adult. And similar to baptism for Christians, it was intended to be a sign and a seal of a new life that God originally had given for Abraham, for his descendants to come. And while it was and is a very physical thing, it illustrated a spiritual change that God brings about in our lives. It's a shadow of something better to come. And the New Testament would describe it as a circumcision of the heart where God cuts away the flesh of sin. It's the renewal of the inner man and the inner woman that God brings about by the Holy Spirit. It was never really about circumcision. It was about what it pointed to, a new life, a changed life, a new humanity through Jesus Christ. And so Paul kind of dives into this topic and he begins by making a really rational logical argument by pointing back to Abraham. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. And I, I promise I'm going to try to land this plane as best as possible here. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted to him? Was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? It was not after. It was before he was circumcised. So Paul is turning the attention of the faith community back to the Old Testament and giving them a quick biblical history lesson. Because the chronological order matters, Paul says. Because in Genesis 12, we read that God calls Abraham out of Ur and he gives him a promise that through him, all the nations would be blessed. He's going to have offspring that are going to bless the nations. Then in Genesis chapter 15, chapters later, years later, God enters into a covenant with Abraham saying, I'm promising to bring this about. And then in Genesis chapter 17, God commands Abraham to be circumcised along with his descendants. So Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. That order is important because while obedience is important, obeying what God says to do is extremely important. It is the byproduct of a changed life, not the basis for it. It's not the beginning of a changed life. It's the effect. So believers do uphold God's word. We do obey God's word. We just don't base our salvation on it because no one could keep it. Now, within the first century church that Paul is writing to throughout the churches in, in Asia and Asia Minor and, and other various portions where the church was expanding, there was a group within the church, Jewish individuals, that called themselves the Circumcision Party which doesn't sound like a very fun party at all. But anyways, they believed and insisted, actually, 
that the physical act of circumcision was required to be a real believer. You can be a kind of believer, but this is how you are a real believer. A genuine believer gets circumcised, which created a very significant problem for two large portions of society, Gentiles, non-Jews, and who else? Women. Women. Let's hear that from the back. It's March. For women, obviously it posed an impossibility. And the only way to be coming close to living a genuine life of Christianity was based on your proximity to a man. That doesn't fare well with women. And secondly, for Gentiles, it meant a significant barrier to identifying with God's people. So does this help make sense why Paul is always talking about this topic? Because it's significant and it's actually getting at a deeper issue because it's a hindrance to people belonging. And God is the God of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, and of all people. And so what Paul is doing here is he's establishing a huge principle. Our kids sing about it. In, in Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. That Abraham is the father of all who believe. Man-made religion, it's always going to cause divisions. It's always going to bring barriers. It's always going to divide the world between us and them. Faith, Paul says, unites. Faith unites. Now, during uh, the time of the, missionary, uh, the British missionary movement, missionaries throughout the world were sent into third world countries or other various portions of unreached people groups in the world in order to preach the gospel. But what ended up happening was it was mixed with British standards of politeness and dress. And so men and women would be urged to convert to Christianity and at the same time change their clothing, change their language, to be less savage and to become more civilized. And the message was this, to become a Christian means to become an Anglo-Christian. But in the 1800s, a 21-year-old J. Hudson Taylor came to China as a missionary and for about a year, he continued to do what missionaries were doing at that time until he started to spend more time with the people inland, among the people, in their culture. And he realized, this is ridiculous. What we're doing here is wrong. And so what he did was he shaved his head. He left a ponytail on the back. He hung up his suit. He put on the traditional Chinese clothes. And he said, I'm not here to win people to the British way. I'm here to win people to Christ. And what he did was he made a conscious decision in his own life to remove the barriers that he had been enforcing. And so this is the challenge to every generation of believers. And what this ought to do for us is to cause us to ask very similar questions today, like this. What barriers to belonging have we been enforcing? What barriers of belonging have we been enforcing, whether intentionally or unintentionally? And the Christian church doesn't have a great record when it comes to this. Historically, there were barriers that are racial, that said, if you don't look like us, then you can't belong. Or that we're lingual, if you don't speak like us, you can't belong. Or that we're cultural, if you don't look and dress like us, you can't belong. Or that we're relational, if you're not married and have X amount of kids, you can't really belong. Or even more recently, political. If you don't vote like us, you can't really belong. 
And there's so many ways that we divide up the world between us and them. But here's the truth. Here's the gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ has torn down every division imaginable. And anyone who comes by faith, anyone who comes by faith can get in on this. Do we believe this? Anyone who comes by faith can get in on this. One of the, uh, one of the things I love most about our church reality has been the way that you have been welcoming to others. In fact, the most frequent testimony I hear from people that are visiting reality or joining the church is just how welcomed they felt. And, and I want us to connect dot shares because I, I think that we'd maybe just do this naturally through the Holy Spirit, just like it feels very natural to do. But when we, when we display that spirit of hospitality, that is, that is the fruit of a church that is grounded in the gospel. What you are doing, whether you know it or not, are being a people that believe that faith truly is our basis for belonging here. That anyone could get in on this by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. So we see faith's boast, faith's belonging. Lastly, faith's benefit. Verses three through eight, for what does the scripture say? That's an important question. What's the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So what Paul is doing here is he's showing the believing community that God's not just like doing a new thing here. Well, that's the way that God worked in the Old Testament. That was like a grumpy, strict God. But like the New Testament God, he's way more accepting, way more friendly. He's like, he's got like a PR guy and he's changed his ways. And now, you know, you can be saved just by believing. He's saying, no, faith has been the basis for someone has been, who has been made right with God all the way back to Abraham. This is always how it's worked. Back in Genesis, God gave Abraham a promise that through his lineage, all the nations would be blessed. But there was a problem. He was like really old, and he and his wife up until this point were barren. So there was the promise, but there was the real life obstacles in the way. And he, like anyone in that position, began to like really wrestle, like how is God going to pull this off? I'm almost 100 years old. We've never been able to have a baby. How is that even possible? And so in Genesis 15, God calls him outside. He says, look up at the stars in the sky. If you can number them, that's how many descendants you will have. Look at the stars, and that's a reflection of how many descendants will come through you. And in Genesis 15, it says, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. What's it saying? He took God at his word. He just simply said, I don't know, God. I don't see how you're going to do it. But if you say it, I'm going to believe it. it. It looks pretty impossible from my vantage point, but you're God, and I'm going to choose to believe that you do the impossible. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is an accounting term. Accounted means credited to the account. And there are two ways 
to be credited in your account. There's wages, which the Bible describes here. That means you do work and you get paid for it. I remember my first job I had that got direct deposit. I was just so baffled by this idea. Like I do work and then all $6.25 an hour of it comes into my account. I don't even have to cash a check. It just gets like wired in. I was just so tripped out by this idea. What was I doing? I was reaping what I had sown. It's called wages. But secondly, there's a gift. And a gift is very different. A gift is the fruit of someone else's labors. A gift is reaping what someone else has sown. And the way that God relates to us is not like an employer. Too many of us are approaching God like he's our employer today. But the way that God relates to his children is like a father. And this is good news because if it were transactional, if God gave us what we deserved, not what we think we deserve, what we actually deserved, we'd truly be in trouble. Because as the Bible goes on to say in Romans, the wages of sin is what? Death. If we got what we deserved, it would be death and ruin. And so we're not only spiritually bankrupt, we have racked up a serious debt. We're like in the red. The overdraft fees just come, keep coming in. We could never work fast enough to offset it. If Dave Ramsey looked at our like spiritual income to debt ratio, he would have a heart attack. And yet Paul says, I've got wonderful news for you. And friend, I've got wonderful news for you. God refuses to count our sins against us. In other words, God refuses to treat us the way that we deserve. And our faith, not our works, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. And so how is this possible? Because I don't want you to have it in your mind that God's just like, all right, everyone's debt wiped away. Like going on the Oprah show, like your gift of forgiveness is under your chair. Today, especially us millennials forget that someone's always paying for it. Like think about it economically, like our debt, costs, loan deferment, whatever the case may be, it doesn't disappear. Debt doesn't go away. It's just redistributed. Someone's paying for it. And this is true spiritually speaking as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And here's how. He goes on to say this. God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's describing is what's called the great exchange. Jesus took our debt and gave to us all of his benefits. Let me share a story, apply it, and then I'm done. Years ago, uh, the community group that I was a part of, about 20 of us, decided to go to Tandoori Nights to get Indian food one night as a group. But when you're going with that large of a group to go to dinner, you've got to decide the terms up front. We're going Dutch. Everyone's paying for themselves. Like, don't forget that. We're not like splitting the bill and you order fancy expensive food and, and, and then we all, we all have to pay for it. So that was the agreement. The terms were set. 
But as the night went on, I began to see more extra, you know, extra items coming to the table, more appetizers, fancy drinks, dessert, extra naan, not just naan, the garlic naan, the extra stuff. And everyone's enjoying it. They're all digging in. But I'm sitting there thinking, great, someone's going to have to pay for this. Someone's paying for this. And so I start stressing out. And here's what I do. I refuse to eat any of it because I'm like, I'm not going to be liable for that garlic naan. I'm paying for my normal naan, my, not my garlic naan. And everyone's enjoying it but me. And the craziest thing is I look down at the very end of the table and I see a new CG member, new community group member. I don't know anything about this person or very much about this person, but they're the ones, I, I realize that they're the ones doing all the ordering and I freak out because I, I, I was stereotyping at, at the moment, so I've got to confess that to you. But all I knew about this person was that he reeked of cigarettes and that, quote, he lived near the Delta. So I thought that meant in a tent or a car or maybe a boat at best. And so I'm getting nervous because I can keep just imagining the bill continuing to grow, continuing to grow. He's not stopping. And then at the end of the night, I'm bracing for it. And because I'm the leader, I figure like I'm the one, I'm gonna have to go home and tell my kids like why our crazy night at Tandoori Nights led to them not being able to go to college. Like I'm, I'm the one that's gonna have to cover this bill. And then all of a sudden people are starting to put on their coats. And that makes me really nervous. And, and, and I called the waitress, I'm like, hey, uh, did you bring the bill? And she's like, I actually already did. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't see the bill. And she's like, oh, because the guy, the, the, the old man at the end of the table, he ended up paying for everything. We walk outside. Chirp, chirp. Dude gets in a brand new luxury Cadillac. He wasn't broke. <laughs> he was loaded. <laughs> loaded. My fear was all the result of misunderstanding who this person was. And I was consumed by the debt and because of this, I was unable to enjoy any of his gifts of grace. He was just lavishing grace on the entire group, but I missed all of it. In fact, I intentionally made a decision to refuse any of it because I didn't want the strings attached. And the same is true of our misunderstanding of who God is. We sit there with so much stress and anxiety about the bill coming our way that we neglect the fact that for the believer, that God has picked up the tab and that his benefits are always greater than our debt. And we're sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to cover this? How am I ever going to work off enough to pay for this debt? Meanwhile, he has paid our debt in full and he has lavished his grace upon us. And the question to us today is what do we do about it? How do we respond? Here it is. The simple answer is what I should have done that night. We simply receive it. We simply receive it. To some, that's going to be offensive today. To some, you're going to look back at your entire life of like, wait, what about all those things I was doing for God to be in his right favor, in his graces? What does that mean for that? It means every opportunity to boast and say, look what I've done has been excluded. We put aside man-made religion. We put aside our best efforts, and we simply receive God's transforming grace by faith. And that means something for every single one of us today, whether you've been a believer for decades 
or today is the day that you put faith in Jesus Christ. The response is the same. We lift our empty hands of need and say, bring it on, Jesus. I bring nothing but need. I bring nothing but debt. And I receive by faith. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word.